Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. I'm Kathy Barron. My guest today is a clinical psychologist and expert in acceptance-based and science-backed approaches to living well. She co-authored, along with Dr. Debbie Sorensen, the book Act Daily Journal and is the co-host of the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast. Please welcome Dr. Diana Hill. Hi, Kathy. It's good to be here with you. Well, thanks for being on the show. And are psychologists ever off the clock? That's what I want to know. Oh my gosh. I, you know, someone was asking me the other day if I, if I listen to podcasts or read psychology books for fun and I feel like (laughs) for fun, no, not anymore. (laughs) Uh, But, but in some ways it's good to never be off the clock, you know, the, the melding of lives between psychology and a parent and a friend and a daughter. Uh, Sometimes you have to be careful not to be a therapist and all those, uh, places as well, because it can get annoying to folks. Well, I guess it kind of goes both ways where people ask you your opinion and want free therapy, and then you imposing those, you know, practices that you've learned onto them. The place not to say that you're a psychologist is on an airplane, because (laughs) then you're guaranteed for the next (laughs) however many hours to be stuck there dealing with people's problems. So I I try and keep it under wraps there. And it's that chatty seatmate that you talk about in your book that I was going to talk to you about. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, But I'm very excited to talk about your journal. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with ACT, if you could just give us a brief overview of what it is and how it's different from other therapy practices. Sure. Well, ACT is sort of a modern approach to psychology and spelled out it's acceptance and commitment therapy, but it's also called acceptance and commitment training, depending on where you're using it. If you're using it with athletes or in the workspace, you call it a training. If you use it in the therapy room, you call it a therapy. And what it's really about is helping people flourish in their daily lives. It's less about symptoms and diagnoses and more about processes that help you live more fully, more aligned with your values even in the face of life's obstacles. And really the goal of ACT is something called psychological flexibility, which has six core processes. And uh, Debbie Sorensen and I sort of added in a a bonus, Mm -hmm. seventh, which is self-compassion, that together build your psychological flexibility, sort of like I often talk with clients about a sort of sides of a Rubik's cube. Hmm. They all work together, uh, but we break them down in, in our book to help kind of approach each one separately so that then you can use them together to become more psychologically flexible. So what exactly is psychological flexibility? It sounds well, it's very been, yeah. technical. <laughs> sounds very technical, but it's, it's not, it's not so technical. Uh, psychological flexibility is, is really your ability to be open, stay present and know what matters to you and orient your behavior and your actions towards your values, no matter what shows up under your skin. Mm. And Benji Schoendorf, who I interviewed on Psychologist Off the Clock, he defined it as just sort of doing what works no matter what, no matter what, right? Doing, it's about workability in your life. And there's a lot of research now on psychological flexibility and these six core processes in terms of not only People that are more psychologically flexible have maybe less anxiety or depression symptoms, but 
it turns out that they are more effective parents. Like during COVID, they did some research on psychological flexibility during COVID. Those that scored higher in psychological flexibility had less spillover effects of the stress of COVID on hmm. uh, their relationships, on their, their parenting. They were able to stay better aligned with how they wanted to be as parents. Uh, there was also less impact on mental health, suicidal ideation, uh, things like uh, depression, anxiety, or just the impact of isolation on folks. So psychological flexibility helps a lot in your daily life, but also in particular during times when you need to adapt to change right. and how to stay in line with your values when challenges show up. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like those people that you just described during COVID seem to be like a willow tree or any tree. It's like, you're just kind of go with the flow and and adapt and be flexible of how things are in life. Yeah. And I, I'd add, I love the tree metaphor. I use that as a yoga teacher. Often I teach balance poses and, and with trees, you want deep roots, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the, you want to be flexible, but have deep roots. So when I teach tree pose, I often teach like root, root through your feet first and feel the solidity of your feet way down to the center of the earth. And then you can move into the full expression of the pose. And I think that that's the case for our psychology too. Like where are our roots and can we root in things like compassion or the present moment or root in our values? And then from there, we can be more flexible and adapt as the winds of life hit us. And that's, I really found that, you know, especially during COVID people, a lot of people return to their roots, you know, like mm. to their, to their good friends or to maybe some of their roots are self-care practices like exercise or spiritual practices that those, um, in some ways I think helped us get through a, a really challenging time. Yeah. I think COVID was a lot of reflective time for a lot of people, um, because it was almost forced on us to be, isolated or secluded or, you know, in our own little bubble. And I think that really gave many people that may have not have sought out that opportunity to be like, okay, you know, take a little inventory of what's going on in our lives and what do we need? What do we not need? At least for me, I mean, I'm kind of an introvert person and I've been working from home and and it's been really nice. It's like, I don't want to go back to the office. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be in social situations that I may have been in the past. So, and I think it's good that we continue to hold those values and those preferences from, you know, for the future, not just have it in certain circumstances that we're kind of forced to, to be that way. Yeah. I think that COVID really exposed for many of us, one of those six core processes of psychological flexibility, which is what matters to me and what doesn't matter to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so uh, in some ways I feel like I, I get really into like animals and nature. And I, during COVID, I got really connected to hermit crabs because I love the concept of hermit crabs that they, they get to go inside their shell and mm-hmm. feel at home, but then they also know when their shell no longer fits them hmm. and they have to do this move. Like I actually got so into them. I Googled, what does a hermit crab look <laughs> like when it moves shells? Because they're just borrowing the shells of mollusks, right? So I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they borrow, they're not even their own shells. And if you watch hermit crabs on the, on the beach, they're all different sizes and colors and shaped and some, some shells are cracked. Right. Hmm. And some are 
like tall and long and they just borrow other people's shells. And so, well, maybe not people, other mollusk shells. <laughs> but when a, when a hermit crab grows out of its shell, when it is, as it grows in its lifespan, it has to move into a new one. Hmm. And so it's, it, I feel like that's often our experience in life, right? There's periods of time where we go in and we hermit up and mm -hmm. we, you know, get present with ourselves or introvert, like go in and, 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 and regroup. But then there's also moments where we have to, we got to move shells here. Mm -hmm. And it's that, that exposed moment of, of transition or for, you know, people right now as things are opening up with COVID or any kind of transition in life, mm -hmm. first day of kindergarten, right. That this is where some of these psychological flexibility skills are really helpful because it's uncomfortable. When you look at a little hermit crab moving shells, they're like this little tender body in there. <laughs> like we feel like these tender bodies and we feel really vulnerable. And that's where it takes something like acceptance and allowing and opening to making space for the discomfort, not resisting against it, as well as, you know, that courage and willingness to, 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 to move and to know when it's time to move that committed action. Right. So I'm kind of tapping into some of these six sides of the, uh, Rubik's cube or the hexaflex or the psychological flexibility model here. But, um, I think that they all work together to help us make those moves in life when we need to. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the six core processes? Yeah. So, so there's six of them and, and I mentioned values mm -hmm. values are, really more about um, how you want to be in the world. And oftentimes when I'm working with clients, they'll say things like, I really value family. I really value the environment. And really values in ACT are more about how do you want to be in relationship to that domain of your life? If I were watching you throughout your day with like a video camera, what would I see you doing with your, your hands and your feet that would demonstrate what you care about in your heart? And so values are actions, they're verbs and adverbs, and you can, you can do them in, in many different domains of your life. And actually you can live out your values, uh, even when you're not in that domain. Right. So, uh, another component of that, of the psychological flexibility or that Rubik's cube is acceptance and what happens when you start to move towards things that you care about or towards being how you want to be in the world, you inevitably will come up against discomfort and pain. And actually in ACT, one of the core sort of principles of ACT is that pain and values are two sides of the same coin, hmm. or they're joined at the hip. That's what Debbie and I say, they're joined at the hip, they're going to come together. <laughs> and actually, the more that you engage in your valued activities, the more likely you're going to experience discomfort. Uh, so acceptance is about the practice of being willing that hermit crab move, like I'm going to expose my little tender body here. Cause there's something I care about over there. Mm -hmm. And so that is, um, there's a lot of practices that we teach both body-based practices, as well as, uh, sort of just sort of saying yes with your mind and accepting with your behavior, but acceptance is a core component of act. And actually what makes it sort of a little bit different as well from some of the other cognitive behavioral approaches. So those are two of them. I can keep on going through, but I don't know if you want me to talk forever. So, <laughs> well, I mean, there's like there. being present, mm -hmm. and then cognitive di diffusion, mm -hmm. and then perspective, and then committed action. Yeah, and those are all, like you said, they're probably all they're all tied together on the same Rubik's cube. And mm -hmm. I guess depending on, I mean, are some people? 
I guess, quote unquote, stronger in some and not in others. And so they need more work in certain areas. And is that kind of how it works? Or is it just, this is what ACT is and this is all of what you need to work on? I think it's really contextual. So ACT is con- considered a contextual behavioral therapy. So it depends on context. In some contexts, we're really uh, caught up in our heads and our thoughts. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, sometimes when we're in, in an argument with someone, all we can think about is what we're going to say back. Can't even, can't even hear the other person because we're just like generating, I have my defensive point here that I'm going to make. I'm so caught up in my head, I can't even hear what you're saying. Or say we're um, in the middle of the night, we can't sleep and all we're can, just caught up in our head with all of our worries, right? In that type of situation, that might be a good moment to use something like cognitive diffusion, which is your ability to step back and get a little space mm-hmm. from your thoughts. So when we're fused with our thoughts, if you could almost like imagine you have a difficult thought written across your hand and you were to hold your hand right across your eyes mm-hmm. to cover your eyes, you can't really see the thought very clearly and you can't see the world around you very clearly either. Mm-hmm. That's when we're fused just like two pieces of metal that get fused together. Right. Right. So cognitive diffusion and ironically diffusion is not even a word. If you start to do act work, (laughs) it spell checks you every time. (laughs) So it's perfect because thoughts are sort of like that. They just make no sense sometimes. Right. But cognitive diffusion is your ability to take that hand that's across your eyes and move it away from your face a little bit. And now you could turn and look at your hand and the thought that's on it, but you Mm -hmm. could also look at the world around you. And we didn't chop off your hand. We didn't tie your hand behind your back. We didn't write a different thought on your hand, which is sort of an old, you know, cognitive behavioral approach, but just give you a little space from that middle of the night thinking, or when you're in an argument with your partner so that you could actually hear what they're saying. Right. So that's diffusion from your thoughts. And there's a lot of playful different ways that we teach it in, in the act daily journal, but it's really helpful just to not take our mind so seriously all the time. Right. Yeah. A a friend of mine who's um, more of a spiritual, I wouldn't call her a therapist, but she always, and I think she got this from someone else, maybe Wayne Dyer, but it's like rule number six. It's like, don't take yourself so seriously. So she always reminds me rule number six. That's a good rule to remember and not taking yourself so seriously because I need to do that with myself all the time. So tell me about the ACT Daily Journal and what prompted you to write it. Well, Debbie and I are are friends first, and then we became uh, podcasters. We um, started this Psychologist Off the Clock podcast because we'd have all these conversations. We'd have these conversations together and we think, gosh, wouldn't someone want to kind of hear what psychologists are talking about, (laughs) about how they apply this stuff to their lives? And And so that launched us in the podcast. And along the way, we've both been acceptance and commitment therapy practitioners, but also really using it in our own lives. Mm -hmm. And up until now, you know, I think a lot of the ACT materials that are out there are are either in the therapy realm or they're for therapists, not as much for the general public. And I really find that these skills are helpful, whether you're in therapy or not, that we could all use them. They're things that I do with my kids. They're things that I do with my partner. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to create something that people could apply to their lives that would, would help their lives open up and have it be really organized and, 
practical and hands-on and in very like five minutes a day, you just like turn open a page and contemplate the skill and then you take it into your day and also flexible so that it could be something that folks maybe enter in at whatever, say you are interested more in learning about values. You could start with the chapter on values. The book, the book is broken down into the six core processes of act Mm -hmm. and each process is a week that you spend. And there's journal prompts. There's little stories that Debbie and I tell, because I love telling stories and I think it helps people digest material. And then there's also exercises that you do with each of these six core processes. So you can enter in at any point, any place you want and use it in your life. And we hope that it's helpful to people in the way that it's been helpful to us. Yeah. And I think it's important that, I don't know, I think sometimes the word therapy is a loaded word because people are always like, oh my God, therapy, you know. Um, And as someone who has gone through therapy for many years, it's definitely... um, you know, like when you said act is either training or therapy, and I guess that depends on the audience that you're talking to. But I think it's important for people to know that you, as, as any therapist, you practice kind of what you preach, that, you know, you're creating this journal, but you're also using it yourself. So you know that it's it works. It's not just one of these self-help books that it's like, here... Here's, you know, all that you need to fix your life and everything that's going on in your life and read it, but yet the person who wrote it doesn't practice it themselves. So I think it is helpful, like you said, that you yourself are practicing the ACT processes and that you have stories in the journal for people. So it's relatable. Yeah, it's relatable. And in a lot of ways, I think of myself as being one of the most psychologically inflexible people that I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so uh, I need this stuff. And, uh, and that's why I became a psychologist. I think, you know, many people go into psychology because they have their own inner demons that they're working with. And, and when I was in graduate school, the program that I was in, we were all like having to find our therapists on the side and not, not, not let anyone know. Mm. that we were seeking out therapy. And it was very much the sort of like, I'm going to sit on this side of the couch and I'm going to have my worksheets that I'm going to hand to you, the the patient, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to tell you how to fix your life. And I remember when, uh, and I had gone through my own recovery history from an eating disorder. And I'd actually really gone into into graduate school because of what I had been through. And I was like excited to share my experience, strength and hope, right? And it was like, don't talk about that. Yeah. That, so that was probably crushed. Yeah. Yeah. That was crushed. And I remember when Kelly Wilson came. So Kelly Wilson is one of the founders of ACT and he came and he did this workshop and he talked about his uh, experience with addiction and his brother that committed suicide. And he was drawing out this hexaflex of the six core processes while we're all crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's crying. And I was like, oh, this is something I can get behind. <laughs> like, yeah. this is real. And here's somebody that has been through something, but he's not, he's not, you know, shoving that under the carpet and then saying he's got it all figured out. He's actually using that as grist for the mill to be able to not only be relatable, but also uh, like understand in a, in a, in a deeper way, how these principles can be helpful, not only for him, but then the people that he works with and what he was researching. So that was how I really kind of got inspired and into act and, I think that um, I think that we just need to recognize that we're all human and, you know, yeah, (laughs) 
that is helpful. Yeah. So what is your favorite section of the journal? Do you have a favorite part? Uh, I really like the committed action part because uh, it, so committed action is about making small moves towards what you care about. Mm. And it's more about process than it is about outcome. So a lot of times we get into this, like uh, Pema Chodron talks about the subtle aggression of self-improvement. Like we mm. get into this, like we're a self-improvement project. Right. And, uh, and I, I think that I really want to take a different approach to that into making change in our life, that it's not about turning yourself into being like a, a work in progress, but rather seeing your life as in process and in the committed action section, we talk about how to start to create small daily habits that line up with your values and what are the contexts that you can create to support you living more in line with what you care about and being how you want to be in the world. And then how you can reinforce that, like mm. this, the real science of behaviorism there, but done in a way that's much more process-based as opposed to outcome-based and much more uh, gentle and kind. Right. So it's like the journey, not just the destination. Absolutely. So what was the most challenging part or what is the most challenging part of practicing ACT for you? Um, I think probably the most challenging part of ACT for me is the vulnerability of um, not having it all figured out. <laughs> You know, just yeah. seeing my, like, here I am, this act practitioner, and then catching myself when I'm really inflexible, you know, or gosh, if someone saw me right now, they would, right. <laughs> what would they think about this? Because <laughs> as a this psychologist, therapist. you're supposed to have it all figured out. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's the, actually the compassion part of it, of reminding myself of that is the fallibility of, of being human. And um, I think that's challenging. You know, it, it's challenging to write. Debbie and I wrote this book during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were two working moms during a pandemic with chaos in our lives. And so that was challenging. And it was a real opportunity to learn about friendship and learn about um, not having to carry the load. Mm -hmm. And we'd, we'd get to these points where we just would be spent and done and we'd have to ask for help for each other from each other. And so I actually really learned about psychological flexibility from her mm. in a lot of ways and, um, and my tendency to silo up and not lean on to the, the greater whole. We, we spend a lot at the last chapter is really about integration and what does this mean for like more pro-social, you know, like the bigger picture that act isn't just about making ourselves more psychologically flexible, but there's a bigger picture reason of when we practice these skills that can spread out into, into the world. And it seems like it's not something that you just learn and put aside and be done with. It's you learn it and you continue to practice it on a daily basis, mm -hmm. um, which Absolutely. is, I think, in, important. So in the journal for week three, uh, the cognitive diffusion, greet the monsters in your head. So day one, is called your chatty seatmate, which is basically about the monkey mind, you know, the mind chatter kind of that goes on. And you have these exercises called try it now. And the one for this particular day is the simple task of like brushing your teeth and noticing 
everything about brushing your teeth, but also noticing how your mind just goes off in so many directions while you're doing this simple task of brushing your teeth. Like for me, I know like at night I think about what happened during that day and what's going to happen tomorrow. And even in the morning, I'll be thinking about what's going to, what do I have to do for the day ahead? And, you know, how many of us actually brush our teeth with intention? Can anyone raise their hand out there who can brush their teeth with intention? How do we kind of shift? Like, what are ways that we can intentionally brush our teeth? Yeah, well, so I, I love that example because it's such a in-the-daily-life example, which is what we were hoping for, right? Like, <laughs> right. you can really, just the basics here, you're vacuuming, right? right? Exactly. You're brushing your teeth. Uh, so one is noticing our minds and and not getting caught in it, you know, like, and choosing when you want to get caught in it. Sometimes our thoughts can be helpful and we want to go into the default mode network of our brain, which is this mind wandering kind of zone place. And there's actually some links to creativity around that, mm -hmm. letting your mind wander. It's kind of good sometimes. But if we spend all the time in a mind wandering place or so caught up in our thoughts that we don't do things that, that are important to us, then it can be problematic. So you can start to just notice your mind. Your mind is not you. Your thoughts are not you. Your mind is just generating thoughts all the time. So even as I'm talking, Kathy, your mind is saying things and our listeners' minds are saying things. And some of those things may be related to what we're talking about, or they could be completely unrelated. Right. right? And so part of it is just sort of the metacognitive awareness of being, being aware of your mind and when it's taking you places that, uh, that you don't want yourself to be going. Right. But I think the other part that you're alluding to with paying attention to brushing your teeth, um, I'll tell a little story about it. part of it kind of links to being present. So during the pandemic, um, well, before that, we live in this canyon in Santa Barbara where there's a lot of hawks mm. that come by. You probably know that from yeah. being in uh, Southern California, these beautiful red tail hawks. And my, um, my partner, he's really into them. So he will go out and be like, honey, come look at the red tail hawk, honey, come look at the, and half the time I'm like, roll, I roll. I'm in the <laughs> middle of something. Okay. And by the time I get out there, it's gone. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And during the pandemic, we're both living, you know, working together, you know, and one day, and he would say that a lot and I'd eye roll. And then one day he called me up to the house and he, and he, and he looked at me and he said, honey, I can't. I can't see all of your face. Like, I, like there's like a huge splotch of your face that's missing. And um, fast forward to doctor's appointments and all sorts of things. It, it turns out that he has this progressive vision loss mm. that he's not going to get back. Mm. Right. Yeah. So when my husband says, honey, come look at a red tail hawk. Guess what I do? Like yeah. there's nothing more important in that moment than to right. go look, right? So something like brushing our teeth. Yeah, it's just a it's just a daily thing. But if this were the last time you were to brush your teeth, if this mm -hmm. was your last minute of your life, you may brush your teeth differently. You may not be in your head worrying about what's com coming up with the day, but you right. may be just being present with your teeth. And so being mindful where it matters is, is really the, um, sort of the essence of, of some of this, like being present where it matters. And then noticing our heads, like my head saying, oh, but this note is more important or mm -hmm. this, you know, email I'm reading is more important, but really getting clear on what is important 
that I want to tend to in this moment. And I think that ACT can help with that. And some of these, these really simple practices can help you pause to reflect on that. Right. Which kind of leads me to the next question is how can we continue to practice ACT when we're stuck? Yeah. Well, I love, I love the concept of stuck because <laughs> I think, um, so stuck is an interesting one. I actually think the first thing with, with stuckness is, is being present with the stuckness mm. because oftentimes we get so busy trying to get unstuck. We actually don't understand why we're stuck and we just don't want to be there and we want to get out there. Of there as fast as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, what we're trying to do to get unstuck is the same stuff that got us stuck. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, there's a term that Debbie and I use in the book called the experiential, experiential avoidance roundabout and experiential avoidance is an acty term to refer to all of the things that we do to try and not feel mm. right. So it can be obvious things like numbing out with substances, uh, or checking out with technology. Sometimes it's less obvious things. So I tend to talk really quickly or I clench my gut and my jaw mm-hmm. or, um, some people, I speed through things, right. Or striving can be another one doing. And so what happens with our attempts not to feel experiential avoidance, it's, it can be really related to stuckness because we, we feel stuck. We feel unhappy in our lives or we're stuck in a, in a behavior that we don't like. And so then we engage in these behaviors to try and not feel that feeling (laughs) and it becomes a roundabout. It's like the (laughs) dog chasing its tail. Yeah. Dog chasing its tail. And as Kathy, you're, you're a Californian. So you, you will relate my, my UK listeners will be like laughing at us, but in California, they started plopping down roundabouts. I don't know, 10 years ago into like congested areas. (laughs) Right. To slow down. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, and roundabouts are actually, you know, whatever the useful traffic tool, but we, Californians would freak out when we get on these roundabouts. <laughs> How do I get off of this thing? Right. And so when yeah. we're stuck, it can feel like that because exiting the stuckness or exiting the roundabout requires going through something like changing a lane and having the courage to get over and out mm-hmm. of the roundabout, right? It's, it's scary. And being stuck is often the same thing. There's often something that we need to go through, mm-hmm. a feeling, uh, you know, a memory, a Um, a strong emotion that we actually need to feel in order to get unstuck. And because we're doing this experiential avoidance of all these strategies to not feel that we're just going around and around. But like a roundabout, once you exit, once you move through, all of a sudden you have access to all the streets in the town, right? right? Because you're no longer confined by the experiential avoidance. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, a great visual for people. And it's also for like, it's, it's not going in circle, but like merging onto the freeway. I yeah. mean, some people get stuck because they're too afraid to, to move over. So if there's one thing you want people to take away from utilizing the ACT Daily Journal, what would that be? I think it's that uh, these are practices that you, you can build and that you can grow. And that there isn't really a a beginning or end to them, but no matter where you are, you can practice living in line with your values and building psychological flexibility. Mm. So it isn't like there's a start point or an end point, but rather uh, right here, right now, like for, for me, one of my um, 
values is to be present with the person that I'm talking to. I don't know if I'll ever talk to you again, Kathy. I hope so. So I'm, yeah, I hope so, but you never know. You right. never know. And right. so like looking at you and acknowledging you as a person and not being so caught in my head mm-hmm. about what I'm going to say next. Right. Yeah. And just being present in this moment. So at any point in time, you can engage in your values and you get to do it over and over again for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I think being intentional and being the active listener when you are talking with someone, because yeah, you are thinking about what you're going to ask the person or what they're going to say next. Or, I mean, even with the interviews that I have for the podcast, I do that same thing because I'm looking at my recording, I'm looking at my notes, I'm trying to, you know, also listen to you and answering the question that I just asked. So it's a lot, but you also need to learn to focus on the person, you know, that that's talking as well. Because otherwise, it'd just be one-sided conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the skills that I think we teach in there and being present is the skill I learned from Anita Johnson, who wrote Eating in the Light of the Moon. It's a book about myth and women and eating and metaphor. And the skill is called One Eye In and One Eye Out. And what she she taught, this is like so long ago, so I probably have morphed it and (laughs) manipulated it. So uh, this is Diana's take on it. But one eye in, one eye out is that you start when, when you're engaging in conversation, you can start with just even with your eyes open, turning two eyes in, like noticing what's happening inside of my body right now. What is the content or more sort of the, what's happening with my head? Is it speedy? Is it slow? Is it, you know, Mm. foggy? noticing the sensations. And then you can also then turn two eyes out where you're paying attention to who you are with, you know, just really acknowledging their face, their eyes, their presence, their tone, their body language, and then the world around you too. Right. Right. And then one eye in and one eye out is how do I like Kathy keep an eye in, like I have my next question I'm going to ask and all Mm -hmm. of that. (laughs) Um, But then also having one eye out. And that's, that's a real, you know, that's a real challenge. Or even sometimes it's just toggling eyes in, eyes out, eyes right. in, eyes out. But sometimes we can get caught in two eyes in, you know, we can get so into ourselves that we're not aware of what's around us. Or maybe we're so into what's going on around us that we have no sense of embodiment, like no sense of what's happening in my own body, that mm-hmm. I'm holding my breath or that I have to go to the bathroom. Right. <laughs> you know? Get that glazed uh, overlook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I in, when I out. That's great. I'm definitely going to remember that. So I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about the um, podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. And you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier about it, but what got you first interested in podcasting? So I was on this retreat with these five psychologists that uh, we were gathering together in this hot springs in Santa Fe. And uh one, Debbie, we, we were all like in our bathrobes chatting and we had that concept of like, wouldn't someone be interested in hearing what we're talking about here? <laughs> and uh, hot tub chronicles or something. Yeah. Hot tub chronicles. <laughs> and, and Debbie said, well, I'm doing this podcast that's about new books in psychology. And it was like when podcasting, I mean, this is almost five years ago. So we were listening to podcasts, but it wasn't as, you know, as big as it is now. And, um, and she said, you know, would any of you want to join in on, on reading some books and doing this thing with us? And, uh, and then we were like, but what if we just made our own? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, so, so, and we, so we decided to just make our own. And our first one, 
our first podcast, it was with Ray Littlewood and Debbie Sorensen and myself. And it was based on the book Playing Big by Tara Moore, which mm. is about how women can speak up and, and lead and, uh, and all the barriers to doing that, which are things like fear and our self-critic and, mm-hmm. uh, and societal uh, barriers. And so we, we sort of played big and, you know, our sound quality just sucked and, you know, all these sorts of things that it still kind of sucks. Right. So apologize for all that. Uh, but, uh, you know, we just sort of went for it. And then we started to just say, Hey, let's just ask people that who would we want to talk to who's right. influenced us most. And, right. and it just built over time. And now it's, you know, uh, has a, you know, a lot of people that listen and hopefully we find it helpful. Uh, but we're still evolving and, and trying to finally try and now also get our own voice right. into the picture. Yeah. Tell me about your favorite episode of your podcast. Hands down psychology of radical healing collective. Hmm. And I said the least I've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, this was during the summer 2020. And, uh, I, I had gone to the APA guidelines for race and ethnicity and psychology. And I was like, who, who, who are the people that are writing this, these guidelines and went through the list. Mm-hmm. And I had contacted Helen Neville who wrote some of the guidelines and she's a um, incredible black scholar who has had a huge influence in, in psychology. And I reached out to her just to say, can, can we talk about the APA guidelines in psychology? Mm-hmm. And she responded by saying, uh, I'm not interested in talking about the APA guidelines in psychology but I will come on your show and uh, I'd like to bring the psychology of radical healing collective with me. Nice. <laughs> I was like, okay, bring it on. Right. And, uh, and it was incredibly powerful for me as a white woman who uh, has, is in process, mm-hmm. like in process big time and learning so much from that collective about how one, how they work because they work very collectively where they like, co-write blog posts together. And it's a collective of, we had four people on the show, but it's a collective of five um, folks that work together towards really healing, healing racism, healing oppression and the, and the effects of racism and oppression and the mm. trauma. And uh, so for me, it was probably my favorite show in the sense that I showed up in the least expert mode and I learned so much personally and professionally from them. Right. Yeah, that sounds pretty powerful. One of my other favorite ones was um, one of the founders of motivational interviewing. Hmm. And in the field of psychology, that's like a big deal, right? Uh, so Stefan Rolnick, and uh, he's just this lovely British, you know, guy that's basically changed the whole field of substance use mm-hmm. completely to this very client-centered approach to helping people change. You know, it's not about forcing people to change, but really using affirmation and open-ended questioning to support change in folks. And so I had this interview with him and man, I researched the heck out of that, that stuff to go in there and be um, the expert or because I'm, I'm meeting with an expert. So I better be really on my expert right. toes. Right. There's no way I'd ever get up to his level. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so he, you know, we chatted after the show and he said to me, I was like, how'd that go? And he said, well, it was good after the beginning part when you stopped being so clever. 
Oopsie. It's like, yeah, it's like, you're right. Yeah. When I dropped that, because yeah. that's what I do when I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. That's how I expect. That's my roundabout. And it leads to not really connecting. Yeah. Understood. So is there a topic that you wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole or are you pretty open to anything? Oh, gosh, there's probably some topics that are so uh, tender to me mm-hmm. that I don't know if I could do them on the air. Yeah. So when I when I was in graduate school, I had this fantastic supervisor who once talked about self-disclosure and therapy and therapist self-disclosure. And for a long time, it was like therapists should never say anything about themselves. Like therapists would take their, you know, take their wedding ring off. Mm. Or, or, you know, never have a photo of yourself in your office, right? Mm-hmm. Or of your family, right? I wouldn't have a photo of my family in my office, but, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, be a blank slate. Yeah. But now that you can do more self-disclosure and one of the things that um, came has come up around self-disclosure and therapy is when do you use self-disclosure and when do you not? And, and the supervisor said, you know, you got to have like an inner tuning fork. If it's a hot topic for you, if you're like going through a divorce and you're talking about your divorce, probably the ne- not the best time right. <laughs> to self-disclose, right? Yeah. But if it's like, if there's actually a function to this that we, we would help people, then then that would be, you know, thinking about it in that realm of how is, what is the function? What is the workability around um, self-disclosure? And like for me, sharing more about my history of an eating disorder or some of the, you know, stuff that we disclose in our book really came from this like intentional use of self-disclosure, like intentional use of saying I am human and I've been through something, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't, there's some topics that I probably am not ready. Yeah. Because they're still hot topics. Yeah. Regarding your, I'm guessing you're still seeing clients as a psychologist and then you have your podcast, which I'm sure you divulge like that, what we just talked about self-disclosure do you still find yourself not saying things in your podcast because you don't want your clients to, to hear? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very aware of the professional role that I have and, and my clinical work will always come first. My clients always come first. Yeah. So um, that, you know, you kind of have to remember your therapist hat when, when you're chatting with friends or when you're in this research mode, you know, it's many different kind of hats to, to wear, but um, I do, we, we do. And obviously on the podcast, we would never share any clinical information mm-hmm. about any client, or if we do any kind of clinical examples, it's always very disguised and usually a, a combination of people that you kind of put together into right. a story. And there's lots of ethics around that in terms of being a psychologist, sure. but, um, yeah. So what has been the most impactful story you've heard and why, whether it's in your podcast or maybe through your work? Oh my gosh, Kathy, you ask big questions here. <laughs> Sorry. I know it's early. The most, it's not even the noon most yet. impactful. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Uh, the most impactful story. Um, well, I have to say, you know, it, we live in Santa Barbara and, and we had a really significant natural disaster here. Um, a couple of years ago mm. where there was fires it was at the time, biggest fire in, in California that was followed by uh, this rainstorm Yeah, that, that led to mud flow. And people know about it because they saw pictures of Oprah and her boots and right. Ellen DeGeneres. 
<laughs> cleaning up their backyards and we're like, oh, poor, yeah. poor Ellen and That's Oprah. That's totally yeah. this, the situation. <laughs> That's yeah. the scene. But but I also, um, at that time, I opened my practice to folks that had been impacted by the by the mudslides and, um, and for free therapy. And whoa. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it was, um, it was pretty intense because in, in some ways, sort of like the pandemic, I was simultaneously going through something mm-hmm. while these clients were going through it. My house wasn't, um, didn't have the impact of the mudslide, but I had the evacuation and the intensity of the fear and, you know, all those right. things. And then hearing the stories and the really tragic stories of folks and what they saw and what they experienced was was pretty impactful to me. And it was impactful also in the picture of post-traumatic growth and how these people would, would talk about what they'd lost or, you know, they, what they saw, and then they would still like be able to say and believe that there's something from this. And and I would see them like saying, you know, I, you know, someone that was trapped in their house with a loved one for five days. And they were like, this was such an important time for me and that person. Right. You know, the closeness that we developed and we had nothing, we had no food, we got down to nothing and how much, how much growth came from mm-hmm. that horror. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's moments like that when you're a therapist, that it's incredibly beautiful to be in the vulnerability and the, um, the rawness of being human, because we all have our mudslides, right. Yeah. And, and we don't know when they're coming. Uh, so. Yeah. And I think it would be an honor for people to share those stories with you as well, you know, to have you as the person that they're, they're talking to would, would be pretty, um, empowering and special for both of you. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So where can people find the act daily journal? You can find it. I think, pretty much most everywhere. Um, but if you want to go through my website, which is drdianahill.com slash book, I have a, a workshop that if you, if you get the book, wherever you get the book, and then you send me um, that, I guess, receipt that you got it. I have a workshop on act with compassion, mm-hmm. which really fleshes out that, that we were talking about that seventh Rubik's cube right. <laughs> side. And compassion is, um, I think, one of the things that I've gotten more and more interested in over the past few years of um, not only compassion for ourselves, but also compassion for others and this and be able to receive compassion in this flow, you know, the Mm -hmm. flow of compassion. So I I have a workshop on that and uh, you can get a free download of that. If you want to take a little workshop on compassion you can go to my website at drdianahill.com and click on the book page. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you can find Dr. Diana Hill at her website at drdianahill.com and on social media at Off the Clock Psych and at Dr. Diana Hill. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Thank you for listening to Women Who Sarcast, an independent podcast. We welcome and encourage your snarky comments. Contact us at womenwhosarcast at yahoo.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at womenwhosarcast. Support us on Patreon and become part of our sarcastic community. Visit www.patreon.com backslash womenwhosarcast.
Show music provided by Mike Imbasciani.